Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm Jason Carr. And I'm Preston Schrader. Preston, today it was a real honor to talk to Max Armstrong, who I, I think doesn't need a lot of introduction. I, I think it's safe to say that he's a legend in the ag broadcasting world. Absolutely. He's often called the voice of American agriculture, and I think that's a title that fits. Throughout the course of his career, I think a 45-year-plus career, He's talked to a wide range of people in the ag industry from individual farmers all the way through ag industry executives and politicians. He's really got a wide breadth of familiarity with ag topics. Absolutely. Max grew up on a small farm in southern Indiana, and Max is also currently the nationally known host of This Week in Agribusiness, as well as the WGN Radio Saturday Morning Show. Max recently published a book called Stories from the Heartland, which we encourage all the listeners to go check out. Without further ado, let's jump into the interview with Max. Max, welcome to the program. To start out, can you talk a little bit about your background, education, career, and maybe some current projects you're working on? Well, I guess I would say simply for the last, uh, what, 45 years or so, I've been a broadcaster, a farm broadcaster, which really wasn't on my uh, agenda back as a young man growing up on the farm in southwestern Indiana. I wanted to be in radio, wanted to be on television, but I never had the desire actually to be a farm broadcaster. And that's one thing that I offer to young people. Keep your options open. You just never know when something will come along. And it can be a tremendous, rewarding, enjoyable career. But I always wanted to be on the radio. Growing up on the farm in southern Indiana, I would sit in the closet as a very young man and play radio. Yeah, I kid you not. Yeah. I think mom and dad had to be very concerned about that. Jim, what's he doing in there? For goodness sake, I hear him talking to himself. But I I was really blessed to be able to go into the field. My first job out of Purdue, I went to college at Purdue, and uh, my first job was with the Illinois Farm Bureau. And it was a great opportunity. I was very, very fortunate to work there at a great time. The president of the Farm Bureau in those days was Harold Steele from Dover in Bureau County. And one of his board members was a guy by the name of John Block from Knox County, who went on to become the Illinois Director of Agriculture, and then, of course, the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture. And it was, just as it is today, a very fine team at Farm Bureau in Illinois. And uh, in many ways, they provide leadership across the nation in Farm Bureau. They did then and and still do. And it was just a great opportunity for me. And then to go to WGN at the age of 24, WGN Radio and Television in Chicago. I was very fortunate. I I was the youngest person on WGN Radio by nine years when I went to work there. And I thought I would last six months. True. (laughs) I thought I would. And and the neat thing about it at the time was the the trading community in Chicago was huge. There were 5,000 traders, runners, uh, all professions involved in the trading community down at the Board of Trade. Many of those folks listened to us uh, as they were riding the train in from Barrington or uh, Lake Zurich or wherever, uh, or driving down the expressway, and uh, to get involved with some of those folks. You know, back in the day, actually, there were some firms that hired old football players because they could hold their positions in those trading pits. I don't know if you've seen any of them. Wow. True story, especially when the Treasury bonds started trading, because it was really rough in there. And uh, some of them would, uh, would bring in old football players because they wouldn't get knocked off the steps. That's incredible. That's a long answer to your question, too. Isn't it? <laughs> I digress. No, that's, a, that's amazing, Max. So you, you grew up on a farm, and you were involved in ag from a young age. 
but you know, you said you weren't really planning for a career in ag broadcasting. So how did that, I mean, obviously that changed. Uh, was that in your education years or when did that change? Well, when it was time to graduate from Purdue, I was looking for a job and uh, there was an opportunity to go to work at the Illinois Farm Bureau. Uh, they wanted somebody who knew something about agriculture, knew something about broadcasting. <laughs> I knew just a little bit about each. And, uh, you know, it was kind of out of the um, out of the mold for Farm Bureau in Illinois to hire guys from Purdue back in those days. <laughs> the only other one on the staff, I think, at that time was Dale Butts, who was the younger brother of then Agriculture Secretary Earl Butts. And uh, the rest of it, it was pretty heavy U of I folks, as you can imagine, back in those days. But I, I felt very fortunate to go to work there and met my wife, Linda. Uh, she is a native of Bloomington. And just I have so many friends, so many fond memories of uh, central Illinois. I always feel right at home there, to be honest with you. Oh, that's great. It's a, it's a, you know, and I'm sure it's the same way in Indiana where you grew up, but farm country, the heart of ag country is probably one of the most welcoming places in the world. And you'd probably agree about that. It really is. And, and it really, I must say, uh, people of agriculture, wherever you go in the world are welcoming. I've been able to originate broadcast from 30 different countries and have fond memories of people opening their homes, welcoming us in, helping us with challenges when we were traveling in other countries around the world. And every state in America I've originated broadcasts from actually all 50 states. And uh, it's just a, a great ag community. I think we probably take it for granted when we live in, uh, you know, spend most of our time in a rural area, but we shouldn't because it's still a real, real gem for all of its shortcomings and all of the challenges that we have. It's uh, something that we should indeed cherish, rural lifestyle. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and like you kind of referenced, it's not without challenges, but we definitely appreciate what we have in this lifestyle. Max, you talked about starting at WGN in the 70s there. Obviously, that did not turn out to be a six-month gig. It turned out to be a decades-long association there that you had with you and, and Orion. I grew up listening to WGN and, you know, I always thought it was a little interesting that they would have the, I think, the midday ag report on a Chicago station. Obviously, you know, that we listened to it in central Illinois, but what was the mindset there? Was it that there were so many traders listening or how did WGN in, in Chicago in an urban market like that have an ag show in the middle of every day? Well, you have to remember that that big signal covered some of the most productive soils on the planet, uh, every direction from <laughs> Chicago. Uh, truly that signal, you know, and it's starting to break down. Of course, AM is, you know, as with there's more interference and more stations on and fewer people listening to AM. But in those days, uh, routinely, we'd have people out 200 miles away from Chicago listening to WGN radio. And uh, they knew they could depend on us for the farm information, of course. And, uh, that we didn't have all of the technology in the day. And uh, so first and foremost, we served farmers. But the fact that it was a highly rated radio station, it was the most listened. I think at that time when I went there, there were 60 stations in the Chicago market. When you combined AM and FM, WGN was the most listened to station in the city. The morning guy had a huge following. You could put together the second and third rated stations in Chicago and still not come up with the numbers that Wally Phillips had in the morning. Wow. So, you know, it was a great opportunity for Ori and I to have the chance to talk about agriculture to many people who had virtually no contact at all. I mean, I was forever meeting 
cab drivers, airline pilots, police officers, yeah, cops. <laughs> and, hey, buddy, what are you doing here? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and, uh, and, and people who knew about agriculture only because they were hearing us. Uh, you know, I was forever having someone tell me, hey, you know, you're, you're, the, you're the only farmer I know, you know, and it was, and it was kind of neat. It was humbling, to be honest, yeah. but uh, also a little bit sobering because it put a responsibility on us to portray agriculture in a very professional way uh, to help folks understand uh, why their food uh, is produced the way it is produced. So, you know, I laugh a little bit when we talk about advocacy being something new. Uh, it really isn't. You know, my, my colleague Orion Samuelson was practicing advocacy when he got to Chicago in the early 60s. He had wow. been there 17 years by the time I started. So advocacy has been going on for quite some time, I would hasten to point out, guys. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. And, it, and it, you know, sometimes something comes around and we put a new name on it, but it's really not anything new. Well, but I will say that so many of you are doing such a tremendous job in embracing it and doing it your own way, which I, I really admire. But, you know, there have been some great outreach programs decades ago to try to tie the farming community in with the urban community. When I, when I went to WGN, there was a thing called the Farm City Exchange. And you could sign up through WGN Radio and the Illinois Farm Bureau to welcome into your home a family from the metropolitan area for a weekend. And uh, then in turn, you'd go visit with them in the city. You'd stay at their house uh, for a weekend. Wow. Uh, you know, generally, uh, uh, you'd go on a Friday, be there Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night, maybe even go to worship service with them on Sunday. It was, it was a way to help uh, broaden the gap a little bit. And you found people doing that who maybe had some indirect contact with agriculture. They were farmland managers, for, for example, who worked for a bank, or maybe they were commodity traders who uh, needed to be a little closer to the commodity, they thought. So it, it was an interesting thing. Then there were farm visit weekends. That was another activity we were involved in. Uh, there were, I think, at one time, somewhere in the neighborhood of two dozen counties in northern and central Illinois, who on a weekend would, in June have three or four or six or eight farms that would be open to the public. And, uh, you know, folks could come out. And this was, of course, was ahead of, you know, our real biosecurity concerns in animal agriculture and uh, folks could come out and visit and learn about agriculture. And, you know, they still, uh, they still try to do something like that in, in June dairy month. They had a, a drive-through farm breakfast this past weekend in a county in Wisconsin, Pepin County, Wisconsin, over along the Mississippi River. And there were 1,100 vehicles went through two different wow. sites. As, as people handed out dairy products and also information about the dairy industry. So the activities continue in just a little bit different way. I think those kind of events are amazing as far as if you can get two groups of people that maybe don't communicate a lot together in an in environment like that, they're probably going to find out they have a lot in common and they have common goals. Isn't that the truth? It can help bridge the gap a little bit. And as we talk about this, you know, with our concerns uh, of uh, ethnicity and race in this country, you know, uh, boy, the more that we can talk, the better off that we will be. As, as many of us know, uh, we, we do have a lot in common when you get right down to it. Absolutely true. So Max, obviously over your career, you've seen a lot of changes. You talked about some things that maybe haven't changed all that much, or we're kind of repackaging some things, but 
what are some changes that you've seen in farming practices and in the ag industry, major changes over the last 45 years? Well, the precision is the thing I think that comes to mind most immediately, the precision with which you operate, uh, with which the farmers are, are able to, and, and you know, that's one of the misunderstood things too. We still have so many misconceptions that are hard uh, to, to wipe out, and they've been around for decades. Some of these have, you know, about the, the use of our crop protection products and how much is used, when it is used. And I think the, the precision and the documentation uh, of these tools is just uh, so good, so much better. And it's uh, to the benefit of the environment. I mean, you, you, know, you think, I think back to when my dad would be, yeah, I was a little boy and he'd be spraying, he'd be mixing up uh, the, the uh, spray material and he'd have white powder all over his forearms. Hey, get back. This stuff's probably not good for us here. <laughs> you know, sure enough, he died at the age of, what, 92, I think it was. But, you know, we, we have so much improved products for, uh, for use now and so minimally using them and so much better care for the land out there. I mean, uh, yeah, I'd go down the road after a rainstorm and all of the topsoil was washing out into the road. Uh, those same fields now are so well cared for by stewards. And again, that's nothing new. I mean, we had land stewards decades ago. My home county in southwestern Indiana, Gibson County, the Soil and Water Conservation District, I've spoken to them a few times <laughs> over the years when they're looking for a, a cheap speaker and I can, I can get back home. But they had a, a photograph of the original cooperators in that soil and water conservation district. And sitting on the front row, I looked at that guy and I think he looks a little familiar. Well, it was O.C. Redenbacher, Orville Redenbacher, one of the original oh, wow. cooperators in, in the soil and water conservation district there. And you know, it was just a reminder that these efforts to care for our natural resources, have deep roots, <laughs> if you'll pardon the expression. And, and really, uh, you know, we're doing better and better all the time at that. But that, that ethic for caring for the land has long been out there. And uh, I, I, I hope the people of agriculture take some pride in that too, that, uh, you know, a, a lot of us learn from our parents and from farmers uh, we respected how to care for our natural resources long before Earth Day was established. Absolutely. To dovetail with that, Max, um, you've talked a little bit about ag media already, and I'm curious from your perspective, how has ag media changed in the last, say, 45 years or so? Are farmers and those involved with the ag, ag industry like us, are we better or worse today at getting our stories out? Well, I think for, you know, you've asked two different questions there. You've asked about the ag media, then you ask about getting our stories out. And uh, really, you know, that, that involves yet another level when you're talking about getting your story out and uh, talking to non-farmers. And, you know, I think I've talked about that a little bit. Uh, you know, we've, we've been doing this a while. Uh, we continue. And I, I am excited about what, you know, 20-somethings, 30-somethings, 40-somethings in agriculture are doing now to try to tell their story and to work with mommy bloggers, for example, and, and others in the community uh, so that they can have a better understanding of, of agriculture. And maybe, you know, maybe, that, maybe that's been one effect of, of this crisis, too, the pandemic, is that we've gotten a little better understanding. Man, I will never forget that day back in March 
I walked into the grocery store and went to the dairy case and the cupboard was bare and, and it was scary. And, and it, you know, when, when the meat wasn't there, when the milk wasn't there, when we went by that very brief period of time, I think it was a real wake up call for many Americans to not take for granted our food production and our food distribution system. And I would hasten to point out so many times through the years, agriculture has complained about that so-called middleman. Doggone it, that middleman. It takes all the, <laughs> all the food dollar. Well, it's true that the part that gets back to the farmer isn't nearly what it ought to be in all too many instances. But we learned abundantly this year that every link, almost every link in that chain of the so-called middleman is crucial. We need each other. I hate to use that darn phrase. We're in this together. You know, how many times have you heard that <laughs> yeah. over the past few weeks? But uh, there is something to uh, appreciating those other people who help make food possible from uh, the, uh, the farm to the plate, even though we'd like to eliminate some of those links. And we may be able to do so in some instances, uh, you know, with getting a little more local production. Yeah, local production is great for the people that have access to it, right? But as you pointed out, when we when we have bare shelves in the grocery store, it's really hard for local production to pick up that gap. So yeah. the links are important. You know, it, it's a, a very important point that you make there. Uh, you know, the, the mass of population that we have to feed here requires the kind of system that we have built here. You know, a lot of people want to throw out this, uh, this uh, huge packing plant model that we have and and certainly the packing industry is in the hands of very few when you stop to look at it. And, and it bears scrutiny. We need to be taking a look at it. But to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, you can't do it. You just can't. For all of the lip service about local production and that, uh, that direct uh, farm-to-consumer link, I mean, it's a wonderful thing. And some are pulling it off. Some are making it work. God bless them. That's fantastic. But when you look at the fact that we have to serve, uh, well, look at the numbers. One billion meals a day in this country. We have to have the kind of mass production that we have, the very efficient production, the very healthy production of food that we do in the large facilities that we have. It serves us very well. As a consumer, I'll be honest with you, I love it. And we, and we take it for granted. And you kind of referenced that earlier. We've, we've kind of grown like, you know, the first time we went to a grocery store and see there's a shortage of meat or milk or whatever else it might be. Um, you know, there's probably other countries where they face that from time to time. We've never seen that in our lifetimes. No, you're exactly right. I mean, I'm to the point where I lust after a roll of toilet paper anymore. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I go through down there, past, past the Walgreens rack, and I look at it. Oh, my gosh, it's empty. <laughs> what are we going to do? Uh, honey, you, you've got 20 rolls and they're stuck away in the house there, Max. So I don't think you need to sweat it. <laughs> you're, not, you're not to the uh, Sears catalog yet, huh? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Or, or the Cheryl Crow recommendation. Remember her recommendation? Well, it was like 15 or 20 years ago. She said, we're using too much toilet paper. Google it. I think she was suggesting we, we each... Uh, need uh, use no more than a square. Jeez. <laughs> oh, I, I, I Google that and see if I'm right about that. It, it was Cheryl Crow uh, chastising people for using too much toilet paper. 
I thought of her a lot this spring, I'm telling you. <laughs> I'm definitely going to have to follow up on that Cheryl one. Cheryl <laughs> Crow came to mind at the crapper more than once. <laughs> well, Max, when we talk about this topic of agriculture and sharing the stories, and, and you mentioned that there's a lot of people doing blogs, doing podcasts, doing different things. Do you have some advice for just the average farmer and other people in the ag industry as far as how to, how to share their stories effectively? Well, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm helping you violate one of those. I, 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 you know, so many podcasters. Now, the key is to keep it interesting. The key is to have some variety to it, keep it interesting, but far too many go way too long. That's my personal opinion. Uh, simply because of the fact that the attention span, there's so much competing for our attention. And, uh, <laughs> and at this stage of my life, I have the attention span of a four-year-old. So <laughs> I'm very guilty of it. Uh, but I, I think as a rule, podcasters go too long. You know, give us more episodes, but give us shorter ones. <laughs> That's great advice, and uh, we'll take it to heart. That went went over like a floater in the punch bowl, I can tell, yeah. Uh, Max, we wanted to talk a little bit about your book, Stories from the Heartland. Uh, I just wanted to open up to you. Are there any favorite stories you have or stories that come to mind when you think about your book? Uh, you know, guys, I, I would be real honest with you. I called it my book of Thanksgiving. Actually, (laughs) I've said it was a great, uh, a great bathroom book because the, the stories, the, the essays were short. There were a lot of pictures and the book was small enough. It fit right up on the toilet tank, <laughs> but it, you know, it was my book of Thanksgiving, I guess, just to call attention to the wonderful opportunities I've had, uh, the people that I've met and who have uh, had a very profound effect on me. And, and, you know, this is a conversation that I just had in the past week with two people about my age, contemporaries. And, you know, I said, aren't you thankful? Aren't you forever grateful for, number one, the family in which you grew up, the community in which we grew up, the church family in, in which we grew up, uh, the people who made such a profound difference in our lives and cared about us, and you know, I, have, you know, I, I get emotional talking about it, to be honest with you, because there were those people who just it did so much for me. And it started with uh, mom and dad. Uh, you know, I think of, of what they gave me, the opportunity they gave me. And as we're visiting here the day after Father's Day, you know, it made me think about it all day yesterday, what uh, my dad and my mom did for me and <laughs> how I, I wasn't even in the same uh, league when it came to, to what they did as, as parenting and making a difference. So, I, could, I keep striving. I've got a second chance with granddaughters now, so I'm, I'm going to see if I can do a little bit better. But, you know, that was what came to mind, I guess, in the book was just to, to relate some stories about people who had a very profound difference. One of those, I, I, I talked about farmers a little bit, and one of those was Darius Harms, who, a farmer in Champaign County, Illinois, who passed away just about four years ago. And I was as close to him, if not closer, than I am to my brother. But the amazing thing about that is I can find you a hundred other people who would say the same thing. Darius was one of those people who was just so giving with his time, was knowledgeable. He was, he was so convincing and he wouldn't let you tell him no. <laughs> you couldn't tell him no. He wouldn't take no for an answer. But it was with Darius that we started the Half Century of Progress show, the biggest vintage farm equipment show in the United States, which is held every other year now at the old air base at Rantoul. 
And uh, even though he has passed, he gave it such a mighty push. And uh, that great community of farmers and others, especially anchored right in that Champaign County area, but many others of us uh, who attend too, have, have kept it going. And uh, how it all started was in 2003. That was the 50th anniversary of the Farm Progress Show. And the manager at the time, Mark Randall, said, we want to do something with tractors made 50 years ago. You know, if anybody could uh, gather some together. And I said, yeah, there's this guy I've met, uh, Darius Harms, who, uh, who could bring this all together. And he did. And we demonstrated the old equipment. It was working in the field. It wasn't just sitting there. You know, a lot of shows have a stationary display. Well, we had that, but the combines were also working in the field. And that's been the hallmark of that show Ever since, uh, every other year it's held when the Farm Progress Show is held in Illinois at Decatur. So we have an off year this year. The timing's good for that, of course. And that's a very well-attended show, Max. I know last year and in years past, I, I don't know what, what the attendance is, but there's, you know, there's as big of a crowd, it seems, as the Farm Progress Show. Uh, do you know how many attend there? Or? You know, I, I don't really know. I mean, I've heard the, the police officials, you know, use a number of 100,000 or something like that. I honestly don't know. And so much equipment comes in, you know, so many people attend because they bring equipment. I will tell you that at that show, uh, the last show in 2019, I kept track of the states whenever somebody would tell me they were from somewhere. And uh, so here, here comes this family up to me. And I said, where are you folks from? And they said, we're from Maine. And I I shook hands and I thought, wait a minute, <laughs> these, these feel like dairy farmer hands. Sure enough, it was a family milking cows, selling direct to the consumers in Maine. I said, why did you come here? Did you, were you here for a vacation? Were you here to go to a meeting or something? No, we came specifically to see the half century of progress. And I met people wow. from 35 states, personally met people from 35 states at the show this year. So it was uh, it was really neat from that standpoint, and, and it just continues to grow. I, I asked for a show of hands during the, uh, the stage show that Ori and Samuelson and I were doing, how many were there for the first time, and it was probably half the people under that very crowded tent. So wow. a lot of folks said they vowed to come back, but that's how it all started anyway. That's a long answer to your question. <laughs> so I'm curious, Max, are you a collector then? Are you a, and if you are, do you, are you a red collector or a green collector? Well, <laughs> well, it's all related, I must say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you knew that, didn't you, smart Yeah, well, I was being set up for that one big time. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this will be a kind interview, Max. Coming from a green a nice, guy, so. Uh, yeah, I have a feeling. You know, it's just one I grew up with, and I'm, I'm fortunate to have Dad's Super H, the tractor that I learned to drive on, and... Uh, it's been all over, I, I forget how many states it's been in, how we've hauled it around all over the place. It's been in downtown Chicago. We did a, wow. we did a photo shoot with it in downtown Chicago. I had it on Michigan Avenue on a Sunday morning, <laughs> right in front of the Wrigley Building. And uh, I, I hired a couple of off-duty cops and we, I drove it right across the Michigan Avenue Bridge. On the, well, it's, it was this time of the year. It was uh, about the third week in June on a Sunday morning. And, it was just a hoot to have it down there. Of course, International Harvester was headquartered on Michigan Avenue in Chicago for, I think, at least 80 years uh, before, of course, it became a part of, uh, was acquired by Tenneco and uh, brought in with the Case family and is now, of course, Case IH. 
Did you draw a crowd with that tractor? Were people interested? I'm just kind of curious in the city there. It's funny you should ask. It was early on a Sunday morning, and that was by design, so we wouldn't have much traffic. But we did draw a crowd. In fact, there was a businessman. He was out jogging, and he came running across the bridge, and he was screaming at the top of his lungs, it's a farm all, it's a farm all, oh my God. <laughs> and he stopped to talk with me, and it uh, turns out he had grown up on a tobacco farm in South Carolina. He had been away from the farm and hadn't seen a farm all since he was a boy, and he was emotional about it. He stayed with us until we loaded up and were pulling off of Michigan Avenue, and uh, it was just a, one of those neat <laughs> experiences uh that day being down there yeah there were other people who, who stood around and uh, this guy definitely had deep roots in agriculture and uh, it was fun for him so max you know like you Preston and i both like to attend some vintage equipment shows from time to time and i i've always kind of ha- i kind of look at the equipment and i kind of think to myself and i look at today's equipment and i i kind of wonder you know there's a lot of nostalgia for the the equipment that you know, we saw growing up and, and our parents and grandparents had and things like that. But when we look at today's equipment, it's in most cases so much bigger. It's, you know, it's harder for a guy to work on himself and things like that. 50 years from now, if you could look into the future, what do you, do you <laughs> see us still having these vintage shows? And if so, you know, are we going to look at 100 year old equipment or are we going to be looking at the today's equipment in that setting? Uh, it's a great question. I, I think it would be very hard to duplicate it. And you, you struck on the, the two key points there, the, uh, the size, obviously. And, you know, the other thing is, is the youth. I think, you know, getting young people involved is going to be a challenge. I, you know, I hope we can continue to have some vintage equipment shows of some sort, simply because it brings people together and firm friendships are formed. I, I can't begin to tell you the people that I have met I've gotten to know all over the country, and uh, there's this, you know, this fraternity, and again, much of it is the rural connection, the agriculture connection. While many, uh, you know, have uh, vocations in other fields, uh, you know, their roots are in agriculture, and there's just something about bringing people like that together, and they're very helpful. You kind of have to sort the the grain from the chaff sometimes when you're asking questions (laughs) under the shade tree, because you can get different versions, but, uh, you know, it's... It really is a neat thing to be involved in. And, uh, man, I, I just think, what, what would have happened? How my path might have been different had I not bought my dad's old tractor at his auction back in 1995. Max, it's been a real honor having you on the podcast here today. Um, do you have any social media involvement or any um, social media plugs that you'd like to give for the listeners to follow you? Well, I do a little bit of tweeting. I, I You know, I'm... Nobody's ever taught me how to do it right, so I, I, I don't think I tweet correctly, but I do some, uh, uh, post some tweets from time to time. I have a personal Facebook page, but it's filled up. I didn't set it up right, so I'm up to my 5,000 maximum on that. Uh, broadcaster Max Armstrong on Instagram, but I'm a little bit selective, you know? I mean, uh, you know, if I look at, at the, the photograph and you, you don't look like a convict, I'll take you. If, if you look like a convict and there's a tractor in the background, I'll take you. You know, it's, it's one of those things. But Jason, Preston, I really appreciate it. You guys have been so kind to me, and I thank you for the honor of uh, being able to visit with you. It means a lot to me. I look forward to seeing you personally somewhere along the way. Yeah, we'll definitely uh, seek you out at the next show we're both at. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. My pleasure. 
The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.